ಮಾರ್ದ್ರಂ ಜ್ವಲತಿಜ್ಯೋತಿರಹಮಸ್ಮಿ ಜ್ಯೋತಿರ್ಜ್ವಲತಿ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಹಮಸ್ಮಿ ಯೋಹಮಸ್ಮಿ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಹಮಸ್ಮಿ ಅಹಮಸ್ಮಿ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಹಮಸ್ಮಿ ಅಹಮೇವಾಹಂ ಮಾಂ ಜುಹೋಮಿ ಸ್ವಾಹಾ ಮೆಲ್ಟಿಂಗ್ ಇನ್ ಟು ದ ಲೈಟ್ ಐ ಆಮ್ ದ ಲೈಟ್ ದಟ್ ಶೈನ್ಸ್ ದ ಲೈಟ್ ಶೈನ್ಸ್ ದ ಲೈಟ್ ವಿಚ್ ಇಸ್ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ದಟ್ ವಿಚ್ ಐ ಆಮ್ ಇಸ್ ನಥಿಂಗ್ ಬಟ್ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ಐ ಎಕ್ಸಿಸ್ಟ್ ಇನ್ ಐ ಎಕ್ಸಿಸ್ಟ್ ಎಸ್ ಬ್ರಹ್ಮನ್ ಐ ಮೈ ಸೆಲ್ಫ್ ಆಫರ್ ಮೈ ಸೆಲ್ಫ್ ಇನ್ ಟು ದಿ ಇನ್ಫಿನಿಟ್ ಲೈಟ್ ವಿಚ್ ಇಸ್ ಮೈ ಸೆಲ್ಫ್ ವಿಷ್ಣುರ್ವಾತ್ರಿಪುರಾಂತಕೋತು ಬ್ರಹ್ಮಾಸುರೇಂದ್ರೋಥವಾಶಲಕ್ಷಣೋತಗವಾನ್ಬುಧೋತ ಸಿದ್ಧೋತವಾಗದ್ವೇಷವಿಷಾರ್ತಿಮೋಹರಹಿತಸ್ವಾಕಂಪೋದ್ಯೋ The supreme reality and its messengers are known by various names and various traditions. But as for me, I offer my worship always to the one going by any name and belonging to any tradition who is free from attachment and hatred, free from worldliness and delusion, who is filled with compassion towards all living beings and who is possessed of all noble virtues om shanti 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 hari om tat sat om peace 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 be unto us all well, good morning this morning the topic I think his soul power as usual I forgot to look but I think that's what I'm supposed to speak on today and I actually did get in trouble once uh, recently at Tribuco I thought I knew what I was speaking on and it was the wrong topic but uh, <laughs> nobody seemed to notice so that's okay <laughs> I think I think I'm okay today I think it's soul power which is the first time I've ever spoken on the topic well actually I spoke on it in Santa Barbara a couple of weeks ago but uh, this series uh, going through our different centers is the first time i've ever spoken on the topic and it's uh, a term uh, soul power that i heard uh, first uh, from a lecture of swami ashokanandas who is a great swami who is the head of the vedanta society of northern california for many many years i never met him never had the honor to meet him never heard him speak but i did um, uh uh here a recording of uh, a, a couple of talks he gave on the topic of soul power and was interested in the topic the uh, or in the uh, yes in the topic the term soul power comes from swami or, i'm sorry not swami comes from mahatma gandhi it was a term that he used and as far as i know that was the first use or the first use i'm aware of of the term uh, soul power and mahatma gandhi used it to express the type of power that he thought the moral person should use rather than aggressive power rather than uh, military power or aggressive power the type of power that uh, one should use uh, for a variety of situations but that is uh, in his case it was used to face down the uh, british empire so a moral power but something more than moral power something more than a just moral power something that comes from the uh, as the term uh, uh, indicates from the soul from the inner being of the person and so it's a wonderful uh, wonderful term and i thought about it at different times in the past after hearing this lecture many years ago and decided to develop the idea in my own way today And so first I want to talk about some uh, related concepts there are several different concepts which are related to the idea of soul power and uh, both to show the interrelationship between these other concepts and also to distinguish them uh, as I've said on other occasions of speaking of different topics to define something uh we do it in two ways one is to show similarities to things uh to and to talk about the nature of the thing itself and also to to d- distinguish it from uh, things if we 
I want to define what a podium is, uh, then we can begin by saying it's a piece of furniture. It's used for a speaker to stand behind to put his notes on, and then we distinguish it from other things that might be similar, like uh, a table or, uh, or a shelf or something like that. And so soul power, I want to treat in the same way uh, and in the beginning to talk about related concepts and to express how it's uh, uh, similar uh, but also different. And so one related concept, the first one I want to deal with is, and we'll go from the uh, more ordinary concept up to higher and higher concepts. The, uh, one would be the sense of personal mystique that certain people have. And we're sitting here in Hollywood, so we're all f familiar with personal mystique. That's what Hollywood operates on the basis of. So um, there, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the sort of personal mystique that uh, celebrities cultivate. If you actually knew the ordinary daily life of a celebrity, it would be as boring as your life. Uh, with intervals of great excitement, but uh, <laughs> it's certainly... Uh, you, uh, the uh, media, uh, the uh, Hollywood media, uh, depends on creating this uh, uh, sense of personal mystique. You see a very handsome, wealthy, talented uh, man like Brad Pitt who marries the beautiful and talented Ange uh, Angelina Jolie, and you think that their life must be one of continual excitement. Well, no, it's not. It's mostly boring, uh, again, with occasional periods of excitement. And so Hollywood hypes this sense of uh, personal mystique in order to create this idea. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. Uh, uh, there is something which is destructive about it, and that is, and you see it all of the time, that people come to see, or come to think, that that's what life is about. That's what life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be continually exciting. And uh, if my life is not continually exciting, and whose is, uh, then there must be something wrong with me. And uh, so um, uh, this idea of uh, personal mystique, again, there's a natural reason for it, uh, but it gets to be destructive when it gets to be the expectation people have of their lives. And it's built on partly on physical beauty, partly on uh, uh, hype, partly on image. And yes, there is something beneath it. There's not, it's not just hype, it's not just image. Uh, or otherwise it couldn't stand, it wouldn't last. Uh, again, taking those examples I used already, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, uh, if they didn't have some substance, if they didn't have real talent, then it couldn't uh, continue. Of course, there are exceptions. There, uh, one of our uh, former monks used to say that, uh, what was his name, the uh, uh, Lawrence Welk. Lawrence Welk, uh, which uh, some of you will remember, some of you are too young to remember. Uh, but he, um, uh, this uh, one of our former monks used to say that Lawrence Welk is proof of uh, the law of karma. Because if you have neither looks nor talent uh, uh, nor uh, 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 charisma, and yet you become uh, world famous, then, then the, the, the only explanation is karma. So um, <laughs> Lawrence Welk is the, uh, is the uh, a proof for the law of karma. But, uh, but again, that's, uh, that's a rare case. Uh, the... Uh, uh, the personal mystique idea, it builds on our uh, desire for glamour. It builds on um, uh, our uh, projection, our wanting to project an ideal. We all want to project an ideal outside, to see somewhere outside that which we hold, that which we idealize naturally within ourselves. And so this idea of personal mystique builds, uh, builds on that. And yet again, it's not uh, completely a, uh, an empty uh, image. A great person, a person who's attained greatness in any field, has some sort of aura, and I don't mean this in a psychic sense or any or a new age sense, but in a very common sense, an aura of power about them, an aura of a special uh, energy uh, uh, about them. Uh, the, uh, Sri Ramakrishna used to say that a person who's attained greatness in any field has a portion of the Divine Mother's power. And you see that, again, with a person who's attained greatness in any field. You, you feel that there's something special about them. There's a special energy about them, again, not to use that over, much overused uh, term. Uh, something that we can't define. You can't point to it and say, oh, there it is right there. And it's not that you see lights flashing out of their head or anything like that. It's just uh, there's something that you feel in the presence of someone who's attained greatness, especially when they're in their own context. When they're in their own context, uh, then uh, you, you, uh, you feel that. 
Recently, I saw the film uh, This Is It about Michael uh, Jackson, or it wasn't about Michael Jackson. It was a film uh, made from footage of his practice sessions uh, that were in preparation for his European tour, which was to be uh, w uh, before he passed away. I didn't think I would like the film uh, until people told me that it was uh, wonderful. Uh, I thought, how good could uh, a film of, of uh, practice sessions be? But I saw it, and I have to say uh, uh, that it was a wonderful film. It was a, tr a tremendous film, uh, really. Uh, whatever you think of Michael Jackson, uh, the film was incredible. There was, uh, you could see the real greatness as an artist of Michael Jackson. Again, whether you like his music or not. If you like his music, of course, it helps because there's plenty of it in the film. <laughs> but his, his uh, dance and his uh, singing and uh, his ability to choreograph, his uh, directing the musicians, his directing the dancers and everything, it was just incredible. Really, you see genuine talent, incredible talent there, and a genuine uh, greatness uh, that was, uh, that was uh, 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 there. And um, the problem is that people often think that if there's greatness in one field, it can be uh, translated into general greatness in any field. And so you saw in the film there's a point where Michael Jackson tries to give the world a message, and it fell flat, because that's not what he was great at. Um, he just spoke some platitudes about we're all one and we've got to save the planet and you know, all good things, nothing wrong with what he said. But it fell flat because uh, that's, that's not where his power was. His power was in the, the dance and in the music and the choreography and so forth. So such uh, talent, such greatness in his uh, field. But it, again, didn't... Uh, didn't translate into general greatness and certainly didn't translate into some great universal uh, wisdom. Um, so again, uh, personal mystique is one level of uh, this uh, idea which eventually we'll come to, which is uh, soul power. And, uh, and again, it's important to recognize that it's not just empty image, that uh, of course the Hollywood press does everything it can and uh, the agents and, uh, and uh, others in the industry do everything they can to amplify the image and to make it mysterious and to make it glamorous and so forth, but there is some substance behind it. Another level of uh, this sort of thing we find with what I call, the best term I could think of to call is, uh, uh, or to use, is a natural authority, a sense of a natural authority that some people have. Um, and both good and bad and even very bad people can have this, uh, this uh, sense of natural authority. People like Genghis Khan and people like Hitler had this uh, sort of natural authority where people were willing to follow them even for things that were not good. And so natural authority, and there are good people, of course, who have it as well. Um, you wonder how it was that a person like Hitler could have the effect that he had, the tremendous effect that he had. Uh, part of it, of course, was that he was telling people what they wanted to hear. He was, first of all, scapegoating and uh, saying that these people are the cause of your problems. And then he was telling a defeated people uh, or giving defeated people a sense of uh, pride. It might have been misplaced pride. Uh, Germany was a great country, is a great country, has always been a great country, and so the mystery is how such a great people, uh, so many great philosophers, great musicians, great thinkers, uh, greatness in so many different areas, uh, such a wonderful country, and yet how it was that such a country could come under the spell, and not everybody did, of course, but enough did that uh, he had power, could come under the spell of a man like, uh, like Hitler. And again, part of it was telling people what they wanted to hear, but that's not enough to explain it. I could tell you all things that you want to hear all day and uh, nobody's going to f uh, uh, follow me to the ends of the earth just because I told you pleasing things. Part of uh, what he did was building a clever image, the, the, uh, the image that he built uh, around himself. Uh, he had people who worked full time uh, in building image. They, when you see the uh, footage of uh, the 30s in uh, Germany where he would be in meetings and things, the, uh, the images of power, the images of glory and so forth. He was an expert at projecting an image of, of uh, power and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, greatness. Part of it was collecting the right people around him, or you might say collecting the wrong people around him, <laughs> but uh, people that for his purposes were right for him. 
but again, all of this doesn't explain his uh, power. They're telling people what they wanted to hear, uh, scapegoating, uh, building people's pride after, it, after they had been defeated, uh, collecting the right people around himself, projecting images of power. Again, you can do all of these things and still not have the power that a uh, uh, Hitler had. Part of it, again, was his intensity of purpose. He obviously was a very focused person, somebody who had an idea of what he wanted to do and wanted to do it. And so he had that intensity of purpose. And yes, that helps us if we have intensity of purpose, uh, and it is a purpose that uh, other people might naturally be interested in, then yes, that helps us to gather people around us as a, uh, a magnet, magnet begins to gather iron fi filings around it because it creates a field of uh, energy around itself, a magnetic field around itself. Another part of it, however, because all of this doesn't explain it, another part was that he was writing, and I'm convinced, he was writing a wave of history, writing a wave of history. Every great movement, and I'm here I'm using great in a morally uh, neutral sense. I'm not saying great in the good sense, but great in powerful sense. Every great movement in history, uh, there's a wave of energy behind it, a historical wave behind it. If the time's not right for it, all of these other things that Hitler did uh, wouldn't be sufficient to explain how he gained the power that, uh, that he did. So there's this wave of history. Swami Vivekananda says that every great man is riding on the crest of a wave of history. He said this in the context of a, one of his beautiful lectures on Christ. We spoke about Christ and said that Christ was merely the crest of this uh, wave, this wave of tremendous energy that swept over the uh, uh, world. And so in a, a similar way, again, not similar in purpose at all, but similar in power, uh, well, not even similar in power, because uh, what Hitler did can't be compared to what uh, someone like Christ or Buddha did, but similar analogically to, to what uh, uh, Christ did. Uh, Hitler was on a wave, a uh, historical wave, which lifted, in, uh, lifted him up. Um, and then a part of that, that wave of history connected to that, is that same thing I mentioned with the personal mystique. That is what Ramakrishna said, that every great person has some portion of the Divine Mother's power. So does that mean that the, the Divine Mother's uh, gave power to Hitler to do the things he did? No. That's anthropo anthropomorphic uh, thinking. In Vedanta, as uh, most of you know, uh, the idea of God in, uh, in Vedanta uh, is not that God is like an architect of the world who's sitting pulling strings and so forth, uh, but the whole universe operates under the, the power of God, uh, that uh, just as the sun, uh, it's the power of the sun uh, that allows you to walk. You're using borrowed power from the sun to walk. You're using borrowed power from the sun uh, to, uh, to think. Everything that happens on the earth is borrowed power from the sun. Um, and so um, in a similar way, the very presence of the divine, the very presence of uh, God is that which allows everything to happen. And uh, these great movements in history, these di great dynamic forces in history, some are good, some are bad, because this is the realm of uh, uh, lost balance. This is the realm of polarities. Um, and as I often say you can't go to a hardware store and say uh, I want to buy a positive battery. I'm against negativity so I don't want negative poles to my batteries, I just want the positive pole. I don't believe in negativity so um, well too bad. You're not going to get a battery that just has the positive pole because this is a universe of polarities and so you have the positive side and the negative side. And so again Hitler was riding a wave of history and manifesting a portion of the Divine Mother's power. So, um, so again, that's an example of a uh, uh, person uh, who used this uh, power in one way, and there are people who use it uh, in good ways, and people that use it a, a mixture of ways. Like you could think of uh, Generals Patton and, uh, Patton and uh, MacArthur uh, speaking about uh, World War II figures, uh, uh, Hitler on one side. Generals Patton and MacArthur, not uh, great spiritual people, not great moral authorities, and yet they were people who had this natural sense of authority. Again, we're talking right now about natural authority. People who expect others to obey them, who just sort of naturally grow up thinking that people are going to listen to me. If you've uh, studied, I'm sure some of you have, um, those who have studied the Myers-Briggs system of uh, personality typing, 
or if you've studied the Enneagram, uh, which is all another system of personality typing, both very great, uh, both very interesting, both are very valuable, that in both systems, and in any, any system, a uh, complete system of personality typing, they will have uh, one type of personality which just expects to be obeyed. It's not that uh, they want to be obeyed, uh, it's that they just uh, expect that people are going to obey them. And so Patton and MacArthur certainly were of uh, that type of uh, uh, person. They just convey a sense of control. They convey a sense of uh, authority. And the truth is that uh, most people don't want to lead. Most of us want to follow. Leading is a lot of trouble. Lead, uh, leading is a pain in the anatomy. It's uh, something that... Uh, <laughs> It's uh, something that uh, is uh, 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 most of us don't want it. We think we do, and then we get into positions of uh, authority, and we think, boy, this is a lot more trouble than it's worth. But there are people who just naturally gravitate towards it. That's uh, just like the water, that, uh, the air that they breathe. Um, and so, again, that's a particular type of uh, personality. Most of us don't want to lead because, again, it's too much uh, uh, trouble, and we'd rather just uh, follow the lead of somebody with a natural sense of uh, uh, control. It's much easier and much more natural to, uh, to follow for most, most people. But again, the sense of uh, natural authority which some people have uh, comes along also with a sense of uh, power, comes with a sense of power that such people uh, convey, and that's part of the way that, uh, or that's part of the complex uh, uh, personality traits that makes up this type of uh, type of person. You can think of a person like uh, Jimmy Carter, and I'm, I'm not speaking politics here today. I'll mention several politicians because they're good uh, illustrations. But Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Carter, whatever you think of his politics, whatever you think of him as a president, president uh, most people would admit, if you look at him objectively, that he's well motivated. He's a person with a good heart, a, a good a expansive heart, a truly a good man, a moral man. And again, aside from uh, politics, if you look at him objectively, he was one of the most intelligent presidents who we ever had. In fact, Tip O'Neill, who worked with many presidents, said that he never met a uh, president who was uh, nearly as well informed as Carter was, who had thought through issues as well as Carter was. He said it was phenomenal, the, the hold that he had on issues and, and so forth. And he had uh, very broad, uh, uh, broad sympathies as, as well. And yet, as a leader, he didn't have that, uh, wasn't able to convey that sense of natural authority. Another politician, and again, whatever you think, good or bad, positive or negative of his um, uh, politics, someone like uh, Reagan, who often was uh, said to be the three-by-five president because his political philosophy could be put on a three-by-five card. He wasn't, uh, again, not uh, talking politics, but just objectively looking at him, he wasn't nearly as intelligent as uh, Carter, and those, even those who liked him very much said that he didn't have nearly the, uh, uh, the hold on policy that Carter had. And yet he was able to project some sense of leadership. He was able to project a sense uh, that uh, uh, made many people want to, uh, want to follow him, which Carter wasn't able to do. And so, um, Again, uh, the, uh, the sense of natural authority is something which some people have and are able to project and other people uh, don't have. Whether you like them or, or not, we have to admit that there are certain, uh, 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 certain differences in people in this, uh, in this regard. Um, and here also I think there's uh, something to be said for the, what Ramakrishna called in his, in his terms the Divine Mother's power that seems to manifest through some people in a particular way. All of us are using that power in our own spheres all of the time, but some people it manifests in this uh, sense of uh, uh, authority. Um, Swami Vivekananda was fascinated by people like uh, uh, Genghis Khan and uh, Napoleon. These weren't great benefactors of huma humanity, so why was Vivekananda fascinated with them? Uh, well, I think there, there were several reasons for his fascination. One was because of just this sense of greatness uh, that pervaded their lives, this sense of uh, greatness, the sense that they had from uh, their youth that they were born to be great and the way that they manifested this greatness. Yes, there are much higher levels, as we'll see in a moment, much higher levels on which we can manifest greatness. Um, uh, but, uh, but they did uh, manifest that. And Swami Vivekananda was always interested in the dynamics of human history and the human personality. And so he saw something, he saw this 
type of raw greatness which grew in people like Napoleon and Genghis Khan, uh, this uh, type of natural authority, this type of uh, power that they manifested, um, and uh, the type of uh, the, the influence that they had over people. And again, this also he was always interested in this idea of the dynamisms of history, this sense that uh, they were raised up on a wave of uh, uh, historical dynamic power and manifested that. So we have personal magnetism at sort of one uh, very ordinary level, then we have uh, natural authority at another level, uh, and then there's what uh, we all recognize as charisma. Uh, now, charisma often is mixed with these others. People will uh, say that a particular act, actor or act, actress has great uh, uh, charisma. Uh, I would use the charisma myself for something which is higher, something closer to soul power and yet not yet to the same. Uh, a certain personal magnetism that people have. And even here, they're different uh, different levels. And yes, a, an actor or an actress can have charisma as well. Uh, but. Uh, personal magnetism or uh, personal mystique is not the same thing, nor is the natural authority of uh, people like Patton, MacArthur, Hitler, and so forth. So types. There's at a certain basic level of uh, uh, charisma. You can see someone, and again, this is a, whether you like him or not as a public figure or as a politician, uh, someone like uh, Bill Clinton. And you may think, well, gee, what kind of charisma is that? But uh, I've known several people that met uh, Clinton, spoke to him personally, <coughs> met him personally, and everyone says uh, that uh, when you were in his presence, you felt that there was something special about him. There was some sort of, again, uh, uh, a presence of uh, greatness about him or presence of some sort of magnetic presence about him. And uh, uh, again, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, people uh, like that. And one of the elements in that, I think, is first of all a certain faith that they had in themselves, a, per a certain faith that they had um, in themselves, and then the ability to be focused, because everyone I've spoken to, and I've read it in the press too, that, that those who meet uh, someone like uh, Clinton, say that he, when uh, uh, you're talking to them, you have the sense that you're the center of their universe, and so they have that ability to focus themselves, to put you in the, in the uh, focal point. And so suddenly you feel like you're in the center of, uh, you've been made the center of their universe. And so one thing about a very ordinary level of uh, charisma is this power that faith in ourselves brings to us, this sense of confidence uh, which is conveyed to the other person, uh, which is faith in oneself brings, and also the ability to focus, to focus the attention, and especially for it to be manifest as charisma, that focusing of the attention has to be at least partially people-oriented. It has to bring people into the focus, otherwise we don't feel that. At a higher level of uh, uh, charisma, I, th uh, I would judge it to be a higher level, we find other public figures like an Abraham Lincoln or a um, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt or Martin Luther King, people like that who manifested a higher degree of uh, charisma and uh, that's uh, more interesting in our present context to study than the, the examples I've given before of personal magnetism, natural authority, and so forth. Uh, such people have all of the qualities of, that I've mentioned already in these other categories, but there's something else that they manifest. People, again, examples I'm using for today, many others could be taken, but uh, examples you're all familiar with, of Abraham Lincoln, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, and Martin Luther King. One of the things that they had which allowed them to manifest this higher level of charisma was that they were living for an idea. They were living not just for themselves. They were living not just for political power. They weren't working just to get uh, political power or uh, economic power or uh, uh, authority over others, but they were living for an idea, something which was bigger than, uh, than themselves. And, uh, even more than living for an idea. Well, let, no, let me stop on that for a minute. It said uh, about Abraham Lincoln, and he said about himself too, that uh, when he was young and he read uh, both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, he was uh, struck by this phrase that all men are created equal. He was struck by that, and he began to think, what does that mean, all people are created equal? It was something that stuck in his craw, as it was, as it were something that he wanted to go deeper into. He knew that there's a truth here. 
Now, those of us who grew up in America, that's something that we hear from childhood, and it seems uh, so obvious that we uh, don't stop to think that it's not obvious at all. That's not at all obvious that all people are created equal. You look around and you see nothing but difference. The difference of talent, difference of intelligence, difference in uh, uh, every area. People are widely different. Uh, difference uh, in resources, difference in looks, uh, ev everything about people is different. So that was an unusual statement, that all are created equal. And uh, so Abraham Lincoln struggled with that. And that was something that for the rest of his life, he said, was something that was in the back of his mind. What does that mean, that all are created equal? And so he was living for an idea, something bigger than just himself that was uh, uh, working on him. But another thing that's even more important than that was that these three examples of people that I'm using, Abraham Lincoln, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Martin Luther King, they were holding the aspirations of many, many people uh, within themselves. They were holding the hopes and aspirations of many, many people within themselves. And this is an extraordinary thing. Again, they weren't motivated primarily by ambition. Yes, they might have had some ambition. Uh, that's uh, natural, they're human beings. But that's not the primary motivation that was holding them. They were, again, living for ideas, and they were holding the hopes and aspirations of many people within them. And this is where we begin to get closer to the idea of soul power. That's a tremendous thing to think. Swami Vivekananda used to give Buddha as the uh, ideal of the karma yogi, the person who was the ideal karma yogi, and why? You think Buddha, he sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree and attained to enlightenment. That doesn't look like karma yoga, yoga to me. If he'd been sawing a board or hammering a nail or something and then attained enlightenment, yes, that would be a karma yogi. But uh, what kind of karma yoga is that sitting, sitting under a tree meditating and so forth and attaining enlightenment? No, Swamiji said that, that was the, he was the ideal karma yogi because uh, he was seeking a way out of suffering for all of humanity, not just for himself. He wasn't seeking it for himself. He was seeking a way out of suffering for all of humanity. And so that was an extraordinary thing, extraordinary thing. He was holding the hopes and aspirations of all beings within himself, not just a community, but all beings. And so again, these people also in their own way, uh, Lincoln, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Martin Luther King, they were holding the hopes and aspirations of many, uh, many people within them. They weren't primarily motivated by personal ambition or raw political power or, or whatever. And also, all three of these people were riding a wave of history, riding a wave of history. You see in all three of them that there was something going on much bigger than themselves. They were at the center of something, yes, but what was going on was much bigger than just their uh, personal lives. And so, again, we see all of these things coming together, as well as the coming back to the power of the, the Divine Mother. Most of you have seen, and I've seen a number of times, just by chance, I hardly ever see television, but uh, it seems like I've walked by televisions many times when this was being shown. So those of you who actually watch it uh, have probably seen it many times. Uh, the film of uh, Martin Luther King giving his I Have a Dream speech in, uh, uh, at the mall in Washington, D.C., with the huge uh, crowds of people out before him. When you see him speaking, you, f you can't, even on a black and white film, an old grainy black and white film, you feel uh, that there's a tremendous power that's working through him that's bigger than he is. And when he fin finishes the speech, I've noticed this every time. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but I've noticed every time. When he finishes the speech, he sort of shakes his head like this and rubs his face and looks around like, my God, what just happened? <laughs> like he didn't even know what, uh, what was going on, that there was something much larger than him that was, uh, that was happening. And yes, that's, uh, that's a genuine charisma, when a person is holding the hopes and aspirations of many people within, uh, within them when they're living for an idea, and when they're giving expression to the, the hopes and aspirations, when they're working to realize the hopes and aspirations of many people, then yes, something else takes over. Something else uh, comes upon them, as it were, uh, to use dualistic uh, language. And uh, they're raised up on a wave of history, and uh, tremendous things happen as a result. Something much larger than just the person. And so we see that there are charismatic leaders, people that have genuine charisma, genuine uh, ability to move many people. Uh, but that charisma, again, I'm uh, separating it from both personal magnetism or personal mystique and natural authority, which even a person like uh, Hitler can have. 
But to charisma, you begin to get into the realm of moral power, moral why? Because they're, again, they're holding the hopes and aspirations of many people, which is at the heart of uh, moral power. And uh, so charismatic leadership is something which uh, uh, comes from something uh, deeper than these other qualities I've talked about. Swami Vivekananda used to say that uh, leaders are made, they're not, or, I'm sorry, just the opposite. He said leaders are not made, they're born. Leaders are not made, they're born. That is to become a great leader. And he's ta he wasn't talking about leadership in any ordinary capacity that we can train ourselves for, we can make ourselves fit to be. If we have certain basic qualities, we can do that. But he was talking about those who become the great leaders of humanity, that they are born for that. He said that uh, such people are born with the, with the sense that, that they were born to greatness. And they begin to manifest that as uh, life goes on. Uh, but they were, from a Vedantic standpoint, they were born for that. They were born to be leaders in this great sense because they had prepared themselves earlier. They had come into life already prepared for that. And so again, from a Vedantic standpoint, we can prepare ourselves now for anything. It may manifest in this life or it may manifest in, in the next. So one of the things that's connected to this ability, and again, this is coming into the realm of soul power, that's connected to this ability to uh, uh, be a charismatic leader, and again, in the higher sense, in the moral sense, in the good, uh, good sense, is learning the ability to join the threads of human aspiration together. Again, we see people of all different types, of all different aspirations, all different hopes and things, but a great leader is one who begins to, tie, uh, to touch something which unites people rather than something which uh, differentiates them or drives them into different directions. But they begin to, uh, they sense uh, something, they have a natural sense of uh, uh, holding something, a thread, which uh, unites people's aspirations rather than driving them in different uh, directions. We learn to unite people along the threads of their common sympathies, unite them along the threads of their common sympathies. First of all, to see a thread itself, to see a thread of higher aspiration, not lower aspiration, but higher aspiration, and to be able to pull that out, to recognize it, and then to hold on to it, and then to develop it. And um, so Swami Vivekananda said something else interesting about uh, leadership, again, this higher type of leadership. He said that if you want to lead, if you want to be a leader, the first thing you need to do is to give up all idea of leading give up all idea of leading, give up all idea of leadership. And that's wonderful advice. It's not good advice if you want to be a CEO. It's not good advice if you want to run for Congress or for Senate. Uh, no one is going to pay any attention to you if you give up all idea, and you're not even going to pay, pay attention to running if you give up all the idea of leading. But the idea is that when you give up all idea of controlling other people, of uh, personal ambition, working for your own ambition, then you begin, the mind begins to get clear, and then you begin to see the threads of commonality which uh, unite people. You begin to see the common aspirations that people have, and you begin to uh, tie into that. That can't come through uh, personal ambition. So, personal mystique, natural uh, leadership, uh, charisma, which again is coming closer to soul power, and then we come to soul power. And yes, I was going to get to it before the time is up. And we are here. So how does uh, soul power uh, uh, differ? It includes uh, charisma. It may include natural leadership, or it may not also. It may or may not include that. Uh, and uh, a, a person with soul power may well be uh, raised up on a wave of uh, uh, historical di dynamism, as a person like Mahatma Gandhi was. Again, Mahatma Gandhi was tying into something which united a people, the hopes and aspirations of millions and millions of uh, people. And uh, what he did was much bigger than himself. If you look at Mahatma Gandhi, the skinny little man, uh, physically very frail, uh, and yet with a tremendous work that he did. I'm not a Gandhian, I'm not a follower of his uh, philosophy or, or anything, but I have great admiration for him great admiration for this man who did uh, such tremendous work and did it through what he called soul power. So the differences are that the source of soul power is spirituality. The source of soul power is spirituality. There are people like Abraham Lincoln, there were many people who met him, who said that uh, they felt something spiritual in his presence, and I think they did. 
and there are many other examples of such people where a person attained to greatness not seeking spiritual greatness, they weren't spiritual aspirants, they weren't great yogis who spent their time in mountain caves meditating and so forth, uh, but they were people who through their own path, through their own struggles, had come to a depth which tied them into spiritual depths. So that yes, people who met such people said that they felt something spiritual in their presence, and I think they actually did. But the soul, source of soul power is first and foremost spiritual. I'm not speaking of an on and off switch here where you either have it or you don't have it. No, it's, uh, uh, what is it called, a real stat uh, where, yes, there is a dial where you gradually get more and more. Again, not through personal ambition, but by th uh, deepening our, our uh, spiritual life. That um, uh, spirituality is central. And um, uh, the deep moral powers that come with spirituality are central here. Again, we have so many confused ideas of morality. There are so many people who say that, well, if you're too good, uh, the, uh, people will just walk all over you. Well, no, then you're not too good. You're just, uh, to quote one of Swami Swahananda's favorite phrases, you're namby-pamby. <laughs> your, uh, your goodness is a mask for weak weakness. You're just uh, too, uh, too weak to speak up for yourself, and you think that, oh, I'm so submissive and everything, that I'm so good I can't uh, speak up for myself. No, that's not goodness. Genuine uh, goodness, genuine morality, is something which is a tremendous power, a tremendous power. Why? Because morality is in the very heart of the universe. The Vedantic idea, as some of you know, of morality is not that morality is based on something that God said, that I like this behavior and I don't like that behavior. Uh, and then we sign a contract and agree to, uh, agree to the rules, and every time we uh, go against the rules, it makes God angry. Well, no, that's a very primitive idea of morality. The idea in Vedanta is that the very fiber of the universe is moral. Just as there are physical laws, so there is a moral structure to the universe. And here we're not talking about little uh, political, political quibbles about whether people should do this or should not do that, or whether you like this lifestyle or don't like the, this lifestyle or whatever. No, those are all human ideas of uh, what uh, morality is. But a deep morality is tied to the underlying unity of the universe. The underlying unity of the universe is the foundation for morality. And as the universe of manifestation, which is a universe of not of unity but of diversity, is still founded in that unity. And morality is uh, founded on that, uh, uh, that idea of unity, which is still the foundation of the universe, even in the midst of diversity. And uh, that's the basis of the law of karma. Why is it that I do something and the results are reflected back to me? It's because of this basic unity of the universe, working through this moral fiber that has uh, been built into the universe. Again, not that God said, oh, I like this, and so I'm going to put this thread into the universe of moral fiber. No, it's the very way of manifestation. It's an impersonal, impersonal law. And so... Um, uh, soul power has everything to do with tying into this deeper moral uh, fiber of the universe. The ancient Vedic idea of ritam, which in classical times became converted into the idea of dharma, uh, was that a, uh, ritam or dharma is the moral f structure of the universe, and to be in harmony with that means to be in harmony with the universe itself, and it means to be in harmony with truth. And so soul power comes when we begin to bring ourselves into harmony with this underlying uh, structure of the universe. It comes when we begin to tie into that which is, truth. There's nothing as powerful as that which is. That's why the motto of the Indian government, whether the Indian government follows it or not, that's aside from the point, but it's a wonderful motto, that uh, truth alone triumphs, not untruth. Truth alone triumphs, not untruth, from the uh, uh, Mundaka Upanishad. A beautiful statement that we should all write on the heart, that truth alone triumphs, triumphs, not untruth. Yes, temporarily untruth sometimes triumphs, temporarily. But in the larger scheme of things, it never does. It never does. And so that's why you see someone like a Christ or a Buddha or a Ramakrishna, you see their influence over the world for thousands of years working uplifting people, benefiting people, was the work of someone like a Hitler or a Genghis Khan or a Napoleon. Yes, they become big in the history books, uh, but what is the lasting value that they've given to us? Very, very little, very, very little. And so uh, truth uh, does uh, triumph.
And so um, there are many people who become spiritual and yet who don't have what we're calling soul power. People who become spiritual but don't have soul power. Why is that? Because there are many people, and even great saints, great saints and sages of different traditions, because many people are seeking just to uh, know God, to come close to God, to know the self, to attain to a high state of uh, consciousness, however you think of spirituality, because in Vedanta we recognize all of them as being essentially uh, uh, founded on the same urge. There are many people who just want to find God, just want to find uh, the self, and that's all. And they become great, they inspire a few people, and pass away, but they don't manifest their great power. And again, the, the uh, soul power uh, comes not just from the awakening of spirituality, but by this ability to hold and to contain the hopes and aspirations of many people. It comes not just from uh, wisdom, but it's a manifestation of power. And power here means the power which comes from the truth of our own self, the truth of the, within, the, uh, within the universe itself. When we tap into that, then we're tapping into the source of power itself because we're tapping into that which is. A person who comes closer to that, a person who even begins to get distant glimpses of that uh, in the course of their life, uh, then you begin to see the source of genuine power, genuine power. For a, a person who's begun to get even a glimpse of that, then this universe itself is a very paltry thing, a very paltry thing. I've seen such uh, spiritual people, people of great spirituality, uh, who you had the feeling that there's nothing on earth that could budge them, nothing on earth, earth that could budge them, not because they were stubborn, not because they were fixed in their ways, not because they had fixed ideas about things, but there was a quality about them where they were established in truth, they were established in that which is, and everything else looked so feeble next to them in comparison to them. And so that's where soul power, power comes from. So soul power, again, is more than just spirituality. It's when that spirituality begins to manifest power in their actions, in their words, in their, in their uh, lives. Um, people would, it said that in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, there was a period uh, in his life when people would stand in awe of him as he would walk through the garden at Dakshineshwar. People would stand on both sides of the path and, and uh, whether they wanted to or not, they couldn't but show reverence to him because there was something about him. And he found in time that uh, that uh, spiritual power that he had was beginning to uh, exhibit itself in a physical glory, a physical beauty and a physical glory. It's hard to imagine that when you look at his picture now, you don't uh, see Hollywood handsome when you look at his uh, picture. Uh, but at one time it said, he said, another said also, that there was a tremendous beauty and glory that radiated from him. And so he actually, in his uh, homely way, he would say, go inside, go inside. Oh, mother, take this away. I don't want this. I don't want people to look at this. I want them to see you when they see me, not to, not to look at this. And so his the physical beauty disappeared, and yet that tremendous power which he had, the tremendous power to uplift and to inspire, to transform lives. People who just saw him casually one time, their lives were transformed. Swami Vivekananda, who was here in Los Angeles, uh, such tremendous power. I love to read, uh, among other books, that uh, reminiscences of Swami Vivekananda, because there you find people who met him just uh, casually, and their whole life was transformed after that. There was uh, Sister Lolita, and or, uh, some of you know of her, uh, who, gave uh, the greenhouse, this, this property, for the Vedanta Society. Uh, and she lived in the house that we now own in Pasadena, Swamiji House. And Swamiji was a guest of her family there. And one day she was uh, walking down the stairs from, uh, uh, with uh, Swamiji. Swamiji was in front, she was behind. And there were people there to see Swamiji, so she was going down with him. And uh, going down the stairs, she suddenly felt faint. So she reached out to grab Swamiji uh, on the shoulder just to steady herself. And she felt this tremendous power entering into her. And she said that the walls, the buildings, everything disappeared in this ocean of light, an ocean of divine light. She says, I don't know how I got down the stairs. And Sister Lolita was a person who was a stickler for the exact truth, a stickler for the exact truth all of her life. So these were not made up words. She said, the walls, everything disappeared and everything disappeared into this infinite ocean of divine light. And how I got down the stairs, I don't know. 
And she said Swamiji was such an entertaining conversationalist that the people sitting in the, the, the parlor waiting for him, they both came down and she said, I was completely out of it. I wasn't aware of anything. And yet he was such a, con a charming conversationalist that he kept people entertained so they weren't even aware that I was somewhere else. And she said, from that moment, I, to me, Swamiji was God. From that moment, someone who had that power. Uh, and so this, uh, this uh, type of uh, soul power, yes, it can begin to manifest outwardly. Uh, 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 but the, the truly great, they seek to manifest it only inwardly and as transformational power. So um, again, a person like Mahatma Gandhi, uh, he used this power for the liberation of India, for the welfare of, uh, of uh, many people. And uh, it can be used in a variety of ways, but it first comes from this ability to tie ourselves closer to the truth. And yes, I wouldn't put a person like Mahatma Gandhi in the same category as a Ramakrishna or a Christ or a Vivekananda or a Buddha. Uh, but he was a great man, and so he developed a certain amount of that soul power and, and used it, and he used it in that particular area. And he didn't use it, what made it soul power or made that soul power possible also was that he didn't use it for selfish purposes. He didn't go around flaunting it. He didn't use it to control people. He used it to inspire people and to, and to uh, move people towards their own freedom, move people towards their own liberation. So an incredible force, this tiny little skinny frail man who moved the entire British Empire. It's a phenomenal feat. Yes, there are people who will say, well, no, he didn't do it by himself, and there were also so many other things, and there was World War II, and uh, then there was FDR who spoke to, uh, to uh, uh, Churchill and so many other factors. No, but when you look at it, there was in such phenomena, there's always one person who's at the center of the wave, one person who's on the crest of the wave. And Gandhi was there riding the quest crest of the wave, and it was the power that he manifested, which all of these other forces began to build around. Without him, that wouldn't have been there. Well, uh, of course, there was the power of the divine, but uh, he was the one who manifested it. So that power of uh, morality and conviction. So how to acquire this? power. Again, not that we should seek it for personal ambition or to uh, say, well, gee, do I look very, look at ourselves in the mirror, do I look very charismatic? Let's see, this, this smile's a little more charismatic. Let me practice this smile. Let me practice this look. Uh, no, that may be good for acting. It's not good for uh, spirituality. So, uh, but how to acquire that type of contact with the, the inner truth, the truth which is uh, true of all of us which all of us carry, even in our moments of greatest uh, desperation, in our moments of greatest weakness, our greatest of greatest, uh, moments of greatest delusion, all of us are in contact with that uh, uh, truth. And so it's just a question of learning how to access it. So Swami Vivekananda says in Karma Yoga, the beautiful definition of karma, that is karma in its widest sense, which just means action, karma in the sense of action. He says, every mental and physical blow that is given to the soul, by which, as it were, fire is struck from the soul, and by which its own power and knowledge are discovered, is karma, using that term in its widest sense. So again, every mental and physical blow that is given to the soul, as, uh, by which, as it were, fire is struck from it. Again, giving the image of striking flint, and the fire which is latent within the uh, flint uh, coming, fo uh, coming forth by which its own power and knowledge are discovered is karma. That is that every action, every encounter, mental and physical, everything that we do in life, every action, physical, every action, mental, verbal, all of it has this power, this potential to strike fire from the soul. And so the karma yogi is one who begins to discover that secret of learning how to act so that fire is struck from the soul. Energy and wisdom, knowledge and, uh, knowledge and uh, love and power are discovered. How? Through action. From the time we're babies, we're acting. From the time we're babies, we're testing our limits, uh, testing the world, uh, experimenting with the world, experimenting with ourselves, experimenting with our own uh, powers, our own abilities. Uh, and so the karma yogi is one who learns how to do it in a uh, ordered way, in a conscious way so that every action, every action has the power, every encounter in life, even casual little encounters, has the ability to strike knowledge and power and love from the soul. So the principles behind this development, I've spoken about some of them, and I'll just summarize briefly because time is up.
Uh, one is being in tune with the nature of the universe, which again is founded in unity, founded in uh, uh, non-duality actually, but uh, in more common knowledge we can say unity. Um, that is being in tune with the moral nature of the universe, where being deeply convinced, not because some idiot stands here and tells you you should be deeply uh, convinced, uh, no, but because we've looked at our own experience and we've convinced ourselves, we've thought about it and seen it again and again, uh, that every time I hurt another person, I'm hurting myself. Every time I help another person, I'm helping myself. Being deeply convinced of this moral truth, being convinced that we're working for the, to fulfill the hopes and aspirations of other people, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that is the uh, source of uh, uh, going deeper and closer to, the, uh, closer to the truth. Truthfulness has a tremendous part to play in this uh, development of uh, being in tune with uh, the moral uh, nature of the universe. Truthfulness, why? Why did Sri Ramakrishna put so much emphasis on being truthful? Because, again, truth is that which is. If we want to be in touch with that which is, we have to start by being truthful. We can't start by being deceptive. We have to start by being transparent. We have to start by being truthful. Uh, and uh, truth, of course, truthfulness takes us to higher and higher levels where we begin to see that, well, if I'm really going to be truthful, I have to be truthful to my deepest convictions. I have to live according to my deepest convictions. If I believe everyone is a manifestation of God, if I believe that everyone is by nature divine, then I have to look on them that way. I can't look on them otherwise. I'm not being truthful. If I'm convinced that everyone is God, uh, then how can I look on people, well, I like these people and I don't like these people, or these people are uh, my friends and those people are my enemies and so forth. No, I have to learn to look on people uh, in tune with my uh, convictions. That also is truthfulness. And purity of heart, of course, has a great deal to do with uh, uh, being in tune with the moral nature of the universe. And purity of heart, again, means transparency of heart, clarity of heart, uh, no deception. Another idea, uh, another element of this cultivation of soul power is what's called tapasya. You know the word, most of you know the word tapasya, which is usually translated as austerity. Well, no, it doesn't mean what we think of as austerity. It doesn't mean mortification of the flesh and so forth. It does mean the ability to concentrate the mind, the ability to concentrate our energies, to focus, to bring the mind together. That's what uh, uh, tapasya is. And yes, whatever practices aid in that are, are called forms of tapasya, but the essence of it is the development of the ability to focus, the ability to bring our lives into focus. And that you see in all of these examples of the greater people that I mentioned who had uh, genuine charisma or who had soul power, is this ability to bring the, the mind and heart into focus. That's a tremendous thing. Through that comes what the Vedas, uh, the Upanishads, and the later tradition call Tejas and uh, Brahmavarchas. That is, this uh, spiritual power, the spiritual uh, glory, the spiritual energy which comes through that uh, development. So living, uh, living from our convictions. Swami Vivekananda says in this regard, and this is the essence of tapasya, take up one idea, make that one idea your life, think of it dream of it, live on that idea. Let the brain, the muscles, nerves, every part of your body be full of that idea and just leave every other idea alone. This is the way to success. And this is the way great spiritual giants are produced, taking up one idea. Mahatma Gandhi said that he took up three moral principles. There are many moral principles we could base our lives on. We don't have to take up all of them, nobody can. And the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna in uh, chapter 12 gives a list of 20-something uh, moral virtues that the uh, enlightened person manifests. And so you can have, and Shankaracharya says that uh, for the illumined, those are spontaneous manifestations. For us, they're practices. But how are you going to keep 20-something 20, uh, 20 uh, uh, virtues in mind? You can't, so you take up one or two or three. That's all you need to do. And you'll find as you go deeper into that particular virtue, one that you like, one that you're attracted to, you'll find that the others eventually are tied to it. So Mahatma Gandhi took up three and said that out of that, all of the power that he manifested, the power that shook an empire, uh, that came just out of that. So again, Swamiji says, take up one idea and make that idea your life. 
Another idea is the idea of yajna, the principle of yajna, the principle of sacrifice. Yajna means sacrifice. And sacrifice in the Vedantic context, in the Vedic context, text in the Vedantic context, is quite different from our idea of, uh, our usual idea of uh, sacrifice in the West. The Western idea of sacrifice is good, and there are many people who uh, uh, have sacrificed greatly. But it's always tied to this idea, uh, tied to a somewhat negative idea that uh, sacrifice means giving up something you want uh, for somebody else. And that's the problem. It always means to us, somewhere in the back of the mind is that uh, sacrifice means that I'm not supposed to be happy, somebody else is supposed to be happy. I'm not supposed to have this, somebody else is supposed to have it. No, that's not the emphasis in sacrifice. Sacrifice means, the idea of sacrifice in the Vedanta and in the, from the Vedic times is that every, the whole universe is based on sacrifice. That is, there's a constant exchange. Uh, we're taking in energy from the universe, we have to give energy back to the universe. We're taking in sustenance from the world around us. So many people are supporting us, we have to give something back to the universe. Uh, people uh, nurture us, we have to give nurturing back. Uh, there's so many things. Uh, Einstein said that I'm conscious every day of the fact that all of my research, all of my scientific research is made possible by the sacrifices of many, many people. The garbage collector, the street sweeper, the, the, uh, the uh, people that work in construction, the people that maintain the buildings, the people that maintain the city government, the state government, the national government, the international society, the web of connections in the, uh, the whole planet. All of that is going to, su uh, uh, to sustain each one of us. So recognizing that, we have to give something back. Sacrifice means that yes, we take in that which we need, but we also give back. And that's why nobody can be happy. Nobody in the world can be happy. Nobody can feel good about themselves if they're not giving something back. Have you ever noticed that? You see, it's a problem, especially with older people. It shouldn't be, but it is often people, when they get to a very old age, they begin to feel that I'm useless. I'm not doing anything. One of the greatest gifts we can give to older people is to allow them to feel useful because everybody needs that, and they are useful. It's not making something up, saying, okay, Grandma, you're, you know, you're really useful even though you're not doing anything, but you're really useful, and we're really grateful, but we're not really. Well, no, no, they, they do do a tremendous amount. They've done a tremendous amount, and just by being there, uh, they're doing a tremendous amount. So allowing people to feel useful, that's the, one of the greatest gifts that we can give to people. So Yajna is another, and I realize time is up, and I've got to bring this to a close, so let me mention one more. Uh, faith in ourselves that I couldn't close a talk which would, uh, on a subject which uh, is tied to Vivekananda without mentioning this. Swamiji says, throughout the history of mankind, if any motive power has been more potent than another in the lives of all great men and women, it is that of faith in themselves. Born with the consciousness that they were to be great, they became great. And so why does faith in ourselves bring power? Why does it awaken us to the latent power of the soul within, the self within. Because without faith in ourselves, we can't manifest strength. When we only doubt ourselves, when we only feel badly about ourselves, uh, then uh, we're undercutting uh, all of our actions, our thoughts, our actions, everything is being uncut, undercut. So that's why Vivekananda said that the old religion said, uh, he who has no faith in, him, uh, in God is the atheist. The new religion says he who has no faith in himself is the atheist. And so that's why he started with that. And how do we develop that faith in ourselves? You say, well, I make so many mistakes. I do so many things I shouldn't do. So many things go wrong. How can I have faith in myself? Well, no, we have faith in ourselves once we're convinced. And yes, it takes time to be convinced. And you shouldn't be convinced unless you're actually convinced, not because somebody told you to. But once we become convinced that, no, my true nature is spiritual, my true nature is divine, then out of that comes all strength. Out of that comes all power and all fearlessness. Uh, because then we feel that, yes, I make mistakes. Yes, I do things that I know I shouldn't. But that's because I haven't been able to manifest it yet. That's what, the, the, that's what I am. I just haven't been able to manifest it completely yet. And so instead of undercutting ourselves every time we make a mistake, we just realize, well, no. That's uh, going to happen because I haven't learned to manifest it yet. Let me manifest it even more. Let me come closer to that. Come closer to realizing what I really am and let that take over. And finally, what uh, uh, an element that uh, should be mentioned for the manifestation of soul power is the power of love. Because it's the love 
which is the motive power in the universe, love which is the uniting power in the universe. It's love which allows a person to feel the common sympathies of others. It's love which allows us to hold and to retain and to con contain uh, the, common, uh, the common aspirations and hopes of humanity. It's that which allows us to live for the, uh, 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 live, uh, for the welfare of others and not just for ourselves. And so that also is in the nature of reality, or it is the nature of reality. And that is also the secret to soul power. For us who seek the truth, may the winds blow sweetly, may the rivers flow sweetly, May the herbs yield us sweetness. Sweet be the night and the break of day. Sweet be the very dust of the earth. May the heavens pour down sweetness upon us. May the trees, lords of the forest, bear us sweetness. May the sun shed its sweetness upon us. May all the directions pour forth sweetness. Om, sweetness, sweetness, sweetness. <laughs> 